0: This is the IBJ podcast for the week of March 21st, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. As you know, Indianapolis has the largest children's museum in the world. In 2019, before the pandemic skewed attendance figures, The Children's Museum of Indianapolis attracted 1.3 million visitors, making it the third most popular attraction in the Indianapolis area, according to IPG Research. And by the way, the first two were casinos. Its calling card for decades has been dinosaurs. And since 2004, that has meant the Dinosphere, a showcase for fossils, prehistoric habitats, and actual scientific laboratory analysis done on site, The museum has put it front and center, accessible directly from the ticket gate, in case you didn't notice the humongous statues of dinosaurs outside the museum. This past weekend, the museum put a Jurassic-sized foot forward with the opening of its new revamped Dinosphere. It features complete skeletons of two towering sauropods and a 15-foot specimen of the aquatic Baptanodon. All three were unearthed recently at the museum's own fossil dig site in Wyoming. There's an art lab, a new paleontology lab staffed by working scientists, all kinds of new interactive exhibits. It's a big milestone for the museum and for Jennifer Pace Robinson, who became president and CEO last year after nearly three decades working for the museum. In fact, she was the original project manager for Dinosphere when it opened in 2004. She spent about half of her tenure at the museum in her most recent position as Vice President of Experience Development and Family Learning. She's had about a year now to get comfortable, or at least to find her footing, as the museum's top boss. So last week, just before the reopening of the Dinosphere, we thought it would be a good time to check in and investigate everything that has been on her plate. Not the least of which is running a museum for children in the middle of a politically charged pandemic. Also, what is it like to become the boss when you've worked somewhere for 30 years and have relationships with all the employees? How did the new Dinosphere take shape? And I ask about the dinosaur in the room, so to speak, at least the question that I think many families ask when they first come to the museum, why is an annual family membership $225? That definitely is the high end for an Indianapolis family attraction. So here's our conversation. I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast Jennifer Pace Robinson, President and CEO of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Thank you for making time today. Great to be here. According to the countdown clock on the museum's website, we are about 46 hours away from the public opening of the Dinosphere, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk when I am sure there are a million dinosaur-related loose ends that need to be attended to.
1: There are, but this is such an exciting time. We're happy to get the word out.
0: I want to first go back many decades to a time, maybe you also remember since you grew up in Indianapolis, since the opening of the Children's Museum at its current location, the 30th and Meridian, it has always associated itself with dinosaurs. Like the very first poster that they handed out at the opening was of a child's drawing of a dinosaur. All the main iconography are dinosaurs. You have dinosaurs looking in from the outside, they're crashing through walls everywhere. Is the dinosphere the most important? exhibit in the museum?
1: It's so, it's like picking a favorite child. I don't think I could say it's the most important, but I will say it's, it's near to the top. So yes, it's very important to us. It was a, a a new way to think about creating an experience where we were really thinking about family learning and we really listened to our visitors because they were interested in dinosaurs and we were able to deliver a T-Rex and those big creatures that every little kid is interested to see, so so yes, it's very important.
0: Can you say whether well, it's the most popular museum? I'm, I'm sorry, the most popular exhibit in the museum. Because I mean, the, the yeah. way that Lisa was set up before was, as soon as you walk through the, you know, you pay your ticket, you could go immediately there. I mean, it's right to the right. Like if you saw nothing else, you could go see the dinosaurs.
1: Right. So we actually track what we call capture rate. So we've got counters on each each gallery entrance and so we can tell what percentage of our overall daily population is going where and it has a very high capture rate it's at 90. So that means that 90% of the people walking in the door are going to go into dinosphere. And some people probably go back more than once.
0: That is phenomenal. And I think that's true. I mean and because it also is a gateway to the other exhibits on that level which also yes. I think happened to be, I mean, pretty like toddler friendly.
1: <laughs> you, right, right. And that was, that's the other thing about Dynaspheres from the start. We, we really leveled the experience. So yes, there's real fossils, lots of amazing information to find and to read and to see, but we included play tables. So there are things for toddlers because typically families come in multi-generational groups and you've got to have something for everybody.
0: How long did it take to install the new dinosaur?
1: So we were closed about a year doing heavy duty work to retrofit that space and get it ready. But we dug out West for five years to get those dinosaurs out of the ground.
0: Is that right? So are those the actual bones?
1: So it's a mix. Typically you don't find all the real bones, even in the best of preserved situations. So Many of them are the real fossils. So those are heavier. Um, and then when we've missed a piece, we've uh, created a digital copy, so 3D hmm. printed, or made a cast of a bone from another similar specimen. And then they're all anchored to uh, a metal armature, a steel armature.
0: So five years ago, about five years ago, those bones first saw the light of day in 130 million years.
1: Yeah. Isn't that exciting?
0: It's pretty incredible.
1: And it was, I, I believe it was one of the femurs. So that's when we knew, you know, when you pull a femur out of the ground and it's as tall as my director of exhibits, Monica Ramsey's, you're like, okay, we've got something big here. And so we were estimating at that point, whatever this femur belonged to had to be between 70 and 80 feet long. And then finding enough of the vertebrae and the tail. So you've got a neck and then finding the rib cage it's been a, an incredible journey. And then immediately envisioning what it would look like within this immersive space.
0: What was the total cost of revamping the Dinosphere?
1: So it was, it's around the $18 million mark. And so that supports obviously the the digging that we did, all the staff salaries. We've got a combination of part-time and full-time staff. We've got our own paleo team and all of the exhibit designers and uh, fabricators. And then uh, it's not cheap to mount a platform, brought in tons of steel to build this platform, worked with an amazing company in Canada called Research Casting International. And they actually created the little cradles for each bone and then those mount onto this armature. Um, And so it's definitely not a, a cheap endeavor, especially when you add in things like the plants, uh, the technology, so the theatrical lighting, digital projection. Um, it's really, it's pretty stunning.
0: Is that something, is that cost just come out of your regular budget, or were there a series of grants or gifts that helped pay all, for that?
1: Yes, all of the above, but d- definitely through grants, individual donors, sponsorships, that it was a combination of putting together a package that was compelling to different individuals who Um, helped us name the dinosaurs that were interested. We had an engineering firm that was interested in the armatures. So um, I will say that it's been a huge lift creating um, and fostering relationships so that people would be interested not only in the project, but to financially support it as well.
0: So in your new job as president CEO, I would assume that fostering those relationships is a big part of the job. and it wasn't something necessary that you were doing before, or am I wrong?
1: So I was definitely doing some of it before. I was always a project investigator on our big grants, our big federal grants. I was typically brought in if a donor was interested to learn about a design plan or the content for an exhibit. So that part um, I was aware of. It's a little bit different when you're you're out front and, and learning to work with a new team of people in the development world. But so much of my career has been about relationship building So whether it was negotiating the deal to get Egyptian objects out of Egypt or working with the Greek government to create or take me there exhibit. Uh, And so I really feel like it it feels similar that really everything we do is built on relationships and, and fostering those, negotiating and making hard choices. But at this point with Dinosphere in particular, we've got partners in England and the Netherlands. And you know, it's just there's a lot of Energy when you do a project this large, that people want to be a part of it.
0: What was, you say, the most difficult part about that transition from the previous work to what you're doing now?
1: I think it's, I've still been in the same, also in the vice president role as well. So I think the most difficult was figuring out, am I approaching this as the president or am I approaching this as the vice president? You know, and trying, and then learning to be purposeful with that distinction has definitely taken some some sorting out, we are going to be posting my position this spring. And so we'll have, I'm, I'm looking for some more clarity for sure.
0: Wow. Why, why did you wait so long to, to try to fill a position? Was it because you know, of the Dinosphere? We you had, you had so had much going it?
1: on and mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, the other thing is we have such a strong team. I mean, that's, that has been the, the best part of the job is really learning everybody's strengths and their talents and they're proud of what they're doing and giving them a chance to shine and kind of do some show and tell with me. I really have appreciated that time to kind of be in both worlds to really see the staff shine.
0: When you become president and CEO, how does your relationship with your fellow employees change? I mean, you were there for 30 years. Right. And I mean, beyond not being able to, uh, go get coffee and complain about your boss anymore. How do you navigate these new relationships?
1: I think I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. I, I was not a person that kind of had my sights set on being a big boss. You know, for me, it was always about the work and the project and the, and the teams. And so in that way, it's not that much different because everything we do is, I'm, I'm really trying to foster a team that trusts each other. But I think I definitely keep a lot more in and, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't want to burden somebody with something I'm worrying about. And if I share a worry that they weren't worried about, am I planning something in their head? So being much more respectful of what they're already carrying around and being a lot more purposeful about how I ask how people are doing and how I can support them. Like that's got to come first instead of what I'm going through in my own, in my own day.
0: Was there something when you were uh, solely vice president, just vice president, that you had been thinking for years, man, I just, I wish we really would do this. And now you've got the opportunity to do it.
1: One one thing that I wanted was, and, and this is going to sound a little crazy, but I wanted to see what the team could do if I didn't pay attention. If I wasn't reviewing all the designs and having all those milestones, we have a very regimented um, exhibit development process, which allows us to make really wonderful things. But I had been with this team for years. And so partly I said to them, you know, I kind of just want to... Sh- see what you do when I'm not looking and just show up and see Dinosphere for the first time as a visitor. Well, that didn't end up happening because there was, hey, this thing happened. Can you come look at it? And I was like, okay, I'm going to try to just look at that little thing. But in some ways uh, that somewhat happened, you know, I, I wasn't involved in the paint colors. And, and so what ended up as a result is a series of magical delights. Every time I walked into the space, they've poured a resin to make a fake swamp for the crocodile and I didn't know it was gonna happen, but I was so delighted. And so the series of small delights that show me how strong this team is and that somehow we're building this culture that we have shared expectations of what great looks like. And so you don't have to be, I don't have to be as prescriptive as I might've been in the past. So definitely still learning, um, but that's been a neat thing uh, to see grow.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit TaftLaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our conversation with Jennifer Pace Robinson, president and CEO of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Now, you have five kids. According to the museum website, you have five kids. Yes, I
1: kids. I still have five kids.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Did you ever use them as, as test subjects as it were, when you were designing, oh my gosh. designing all, exhibits or wanting to know, like, are you interested in this as opposed to this?
1: Oh my gosh. All the time. All the time. They, I did prototyping on them. There's like way too many pictures of them. Um, my son was maybe three years old and was modeling, um, dinosaur costumes for the first Dinosphere. And. He's now 6'3", and he's in college, you know, so he's like, I want to come back and see Dinosphere. We did a lot of pretend play in our basement, you know, while we were in the process of building, building these exhibits. I mean, my house is filled with cardboard and Hot Wheels track, and these kids, like, built the coolest stuff. But it really showed me, again, what I mentioned with the team, if you give them some freedom within some guardrails, but you give them some creativity, with some really cool materials, what they can do. And that has been the basis of what, what we've seen. But even more, what I've noticed with my own kids is yes, they lo- they have grown up loving the exhibits, but it's the confidence that the staff has built for them. So more than the experience, they got to know Josh and Dinosphere and Kumari and, and Egypt. And I can't tell if they were coming for the museum exhibit or they were coming to interact with the staff. But those staff... Encourage them, and I've never seen a group of kids who are so confident. You know, they'll raise their hand even if they're wrong. It's so much different than when I was growing up. And I really feel like that confidence came because the staff took time to get to know them and treat them like real people and ask them what their ideas were and what they were thinking and what they observed. That is how we do interpretation. And so as magical as our built environments are, they even they're even cooler when you see the staff in there. So when you go into Dinosphere, you're going to come face to face with the dive instructor. That's going to take you on a Mesozoic scuba dive. Okay. And it's funny. And the whole family is working together. We've got an amazing sound and light show, but we've got an actor portraying a paleontology student who's up there, you know, looking at all the diplodocus bones and trying to figure out what animal it is, but just bringing this really bringing things to life.
0: Now, I mean, you're, your oldest child uh, is in, is it his or her twenties? Uh, yes. She,
1: okay. yeah.
0: She, d- does it seem like she or any of the other kids are interested in going into this field?
1: Nobody is interested in it. <laughs> 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 My eldest daughter works for the FBI. Well,
0: that's and cool. And so they loved
1: it, but I, but they're like, I don't know. We love it, mom, but we don't need to live here. They are you know, interested in, in culture and music and history, but so far nobody's made a career out of it yet. But some of them are still young, so we'll see.
0: Let, let's go back to, to the last year, as we almost always do here on the podcast. How would you describe the experience of trying to run a children's museum during a pandemic?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's like I haven't quite seen it in the rearview mirror yet to be able to to articulate what it was like. Um, I think we're seeing glimpse of it on a day like today when we've got a member preview for the new dinosaur and the crowds are coming back. I, I, I would describe it as a series of infinite innovations, something new every day, whether it was, a, and, and marrying that with what was going on in the world and the scientific data that was coming out and, just so much networking, what are you doing? What's this museum doing? What's that theme park doing? So um, it kind of felt like I was trying to learn how to juggle, but the balls were like the CDC and what families needed during the pandemic. So we, you know, pivoted hard right at the beginning and did a lot of virtual content, but then people really wanted to come back in the building. So then it's like, okay, taper off the virtual because it takes the same amount of people to do the virtual as it does. To operate the physical space, but we've got to have some presence. So it's just been a series of um, decisions that you. I never really thought that I would have to make.
0: I can say, as a local parent of a a six-year-old who belongs to the usual amount of of Facebook groups and and parenting forums, I can say that I can tell you that the museum was a constant topic of debate. Parents are constantly questioning: Mm -hmm. Should the museum be open? Should the museum be closed? Mm -hmm. What should they? Should the kids have to wear masks uh, or are they crazy? How much of that debate did you hear on the executive level?
1: Oh, yeah, we, we heard it all. Yeah, we we and we went out and we sought it out. You, you know, we um, were making decisions about our COVID protocol and we were, you know, I'm scouring Facebook to see what the feedback, feedback is. I'm going down to the box office and saying, hey, what's going on today? You know, talking to the call center. Like we really put ourselves in the middle because we didn't want to be making decisions without understanding the impact on the front line, the people who were out there from the garage greeter. And just that impact, you know, by the time people got to uh, the interpretation team and the galleries, maybe people were fine, but that was because the garage greeter and the visitor services staff kind of set the public up. And so we ended up making this diagram of decision-making so that we could promise the staff that if we've changed our protocol, it's because we've gone through all these steps and we've talked to all these people. And so it's talking to the front line. We had, we assembled a medical panel to be advisors out of um, Riley Hospital. And so I would say we are definitely in the middle of the feedback, you know, and, and seeing the burden that, 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 that had on our staff too, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and trying to lift people up because sometimes it was contradictory feedback and sometimes it was, there was a lot of negative feedback on both sides.
0: That just, it just occurred to me. How, how large a staff do you have?
1: Around 300. Okay. Around three
0: hundred. So yeah, so you had, you had, uh, I mean, two different uh, arenas there. You had to explain what your policies were going to be to your own staff that had their own uh, concerns about, you know, am I safe at work? How are we doing things here? internally. And you also add then to work with the public and say, here's why right. we're doing this. So right. that, seems like a, that seems like a lot of people that have to. And experiment. then we
1: changed it. And then it was like, shuffle it all, you know, or you yeah. tweak and you add this new piece of information and how's that going to change our cleaning regimen or our spacing protocol, or, you know, we've put things on the carpet where people should stand. We've taken them up. We've, you know, it's just, Again, it's that nimbleness and that creativity that is is, it is the best when, like, I have not had to make all those decisions, like getting the smart group of people in the same room and they've really figured things out as a team.
0: I mean, you mentioned um, how, I mean, the effect of, of, of everybody on the whole chain of employees. I remember specifically one thread that I saw, and I think it was started by a museum employee, about how some visitors were really getting vociferous about needing to wear a mask and that they even were sometimes abusive. How much of a strain is that on your staff and how do you deal with yeah, that?
1: It's it's a strain. We we've ended up bringing in additional security and doing some additional measures with that additional security to try to mitigate that before the public got to the the staff where they were needing to have these meaningful interactions, either at the box office or in a gallery running a program, because it really just sucks the life out of that family learning that you're trying to engage the public with. And so we weren't able to eliminate all of that, but we really tried to support the staff and tried to mitigate that as much as we could.
0: I'm I'm sorry. I haven't been to the museum in a little bit. We just kind of got out of our hovels a little while ago. Is this something that the museum has or is considering Doing an exhibit about something about infectious diseases that could kind of shine a light on how, uh, at least for you know younger kids, what it's all about.
1: So we've actually done some uh, virtual experiences. Um, so we've got some online video content from our STEM educators, and we have some programs up in our Science Works Gallery. We don't. We haven't actually talked about again like a, a whole exhibit on it because, like I said before, it's not quite in the rear view mirror yet. But we did decide early on that we would use our voice to elevate the science and to talk about the mechanics of um, what a virus is and hand washing and all of those things. So those things you will see um, on our website and through our through some of our programming.
0: I like the phrase um, support the science. Again, I haven't been to the museum in a while. Is, is there anything that addresses the science of climate change and how humans uh, have contributed to it?
1: I cannot think of anything, but that is a new initiative that we're not ready to announce yet, but we are going to be getting into the sustainability space and taking some time to do research and and figuring out what our role could be. And is that a program? Is that an exhibit? Is it um, in addition to an already existing exhibit? But we're definitely having those conversations.
0: Yeah, I was thinking, too, you know, how does the, the museum typically handle, I mean, really you know, sensitive and, and loaded topics? And usually, they tell me if I'm wrong here, the examples that I can think of, it's through the lens of a child. I mean, it's through Ryan White, or it's through Andrew, right. or it's through, as a Ruby Bridges? Ruby Bridges. Um, and, and I don't know how you would, how necessarily you would do that with climate mm-hmm. change.
1: The other thing we do is, I mean, that is a good way to do it, through the eyes of a child, so you're you know, you can't argue with that particular person's point of view. And I I learned that the hard way I suggested to Ruby Bridges. Well, your teacher, Mrs. Henry said such and such about the classroom when we were building the Power of Children exhibit. And she said, Jennifer, is this my story or is this Mrs. Henry's story? But that was an amazing lesson, like going forward. So it also gave me the freedom to say, I don't have to try to tell every point of view. We can tell one, you know, key person's point of view. So that's one way. The other way is these uh, panels of experts and advisors that we pull together. So even for Dinosphere, you get into conversations about what caused the end of the age of the dinosaurs and people have different ideas. And so we got real familiar with using the term some scientists think fill in the blank. And I truly feel that, again, you get these people in a room to have a conversation. And if it's not a difficult topic, it, it might not be worthwhile. you know. And it, even within the Ruby Bridges space, what we were willing to show about Indiana. You know, it was easier to talk about the rise of the Nazi party in Germany because it was just an arm length away. But then when it came to racism and um, hatred here in Indiana, it was like, do we talk about the Klan? But we got a group of scholars and journalists and advisors who, who live in that space all the time to help us make those really hard decisions that we definitely try to listen. And it's not just scholarly experts. It's community members or people who, again, live in that space and think about it a lot. That's really a place that I'm most interested in, that space of how we are partners and we engage with the community that knows more than we do. We are very good interpreters, but we certainly are not, we haven't lived every experience and and we are not the experts in every, in every area.
0: So your, your latest uh, big initiative Dynosphere. Are there, I don't know how much you can share here, I mean, plans to expand the campus or build major new features?
1: So we've taken some time to kind of step back. You know, the pandemic has, it's really kind of boiled down and shown us what's important. And this space that we, we are inhabiting right now is beloved. And it's also 500,000 square feet. And it also takes a lot of money to run. So uh, we are very interested in investing in our existing infrastructure, but as you'll see in Dynosphere, we've expanded that experience in a huge way, but we didn't add to the footprint. I think there's room within this infrastructure, which is, is a fantastic building to do even more with the space that we already have.
0: So when we talk about the footprint, at one point the uh, well, I don't know what is it, a decade ago or so, the museum bought the Drake Apartment building, which is on the same block and directly adjacent to the campus. And initially, uh, it talked about planning to knock it down. It has since, uh, I think, after the city objected to that and and tried to protect it uh, with uh, an historic designation. The last that I had heard was that the museum was working with the city and working with a private developer to try to find uh, some kind of viable use for the building. Can you give us an update at all about where you are with that?
1: Yeah, I can give you a little update because it is still um, in in progress. But I will say that, yes, it was historically designated. And I can't speak to why it was purchased initially. But that historic designation um, is going to remain. And we've had some really thoughtful conversations with the city. And we are committed to working together to come up with a mutually agreeable solution.
0: I'm gonna hit you with, with the, the big question here at the end, the cost of a family membership at the museum, uh, two adults and as many kids as you have, is $225 a year. That is the ceiling for Indianapolis family attractions. I and mean, the zoo is a little bit less, it's about 210. And it, it's sort of interesting when you report on, on the different family attractions that people Usually refer to the museum as like that's the point of comparison. Like when Newfields decided to go to a paid membership model, uh, supporters of Newfields quickly would say, "Well, look at the children's museum. The children's museum charges two hundred twenty-five. So I'm going to take the point of view of of a, the family who is coming in the museum for the first time. They see the what the, the one day admission is. They hear, well, you could you should take a look at the uh, at the family membership and I know from personal experience to do a little bit of a double take and you're like, wow, that's kind of like a family budget item. Explain to us why is it that much? What, what, what would happen if you froze it or if you decided to decrease it?
1: So got a couple of, of things to consider. So part of, and I mentioned some things earlier in the podcast about what makes us different and unique and special. And those are things that have a higher price tag. So the staff, you know, and that's something that we're working on is uh, we, we made, uh, we took a wage increase for our frontline staff this year. So when you come into one of our exhibits, you're going to encounter the safari guide and Dinosphere. You know, it's, it's somebody who's highly trained, who has a background or an interest in history, who's wearing a costume and it's all the wraparound that goes with that. Okay. So that's, it's expensive, but it's important investment that we make. The other thing is the infrastructure. You know, we don't want to be that museum. You know, sometimes you go in museums and they've got things that are broken or things that aren't working or the carpet has a roof, you know, and we have some of that, those, you know, that takes time, but we've made a commitment that when you come in, this place is going to look great. It's going to be clean. And we've got a crew of cleaners. We've got a crew of landscapers. The other thing is we've added this 7.5 acre outdoor experience that in and of itself is like a, another whole day experience, truthfully, that you really could spend more than two days. You can do inside, you can do outside. So when you look at the cost, and the other thing is we've got a, a collection, we have over hundred thousand objects. And so the other thing I'm looking at is, and this is not the exciting thing to talk about, but we need to redo our storage to make sure that some of these objects that we've literally had almost a hundred years that we can care for them another hundred years. You know, dinosaur bones take up space, but other, other museums and universities come and study our fossils. You know, so when you put all those things together, it's very different than a theme park or um, just a, an outdoor play space. You know, there's all these things that make us so different and so unique. And if you took any one of those away I think it would we still, we wouldn't be the same place that we are right now. And, and I'm particularly committed to the staff and looking at how we can grow and what we offer, particularly for that part-time group. As a person who, I think I worked here three and a half years as a part-time person, and I had two other jobs and, you know, these people are passionate about what we do, you know, and how can we help them have uh, sustainability in a career here? And that takes money.
0: Well, I've I've taken too much of your time. Um, Thank you so much for bringing me up to date. Yeah, thank you. My thanks again to Jennifer Pace Robinson. And I have a quick addendum to our conversation about the Drake apartment building. The city of Indianapolis confirmed IBJ after the podcast interview was conducted that it has had very preliminary conversations with the Children's Museum about buying the Drake, which it envisions could contain 27 units of affordable workforce housing. In general, the city said it does hope to play some part in the redevelopment of the site. We asked the Children's Museum if it wanted to shed any more light on that, and they said that Robinson's comments from the podcast could stand as is. Now, folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, There are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, it's been nearly two years since COVID-19 led Delta Airlines to stop flying its Indianapolis to Paris route, and airport officials still can't say when the flight will return. Mickey Shuey unpacks how they hope to reestablish transatlantic flights. Also in this week's issue, Susan Orr explains how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having a direct impact on Indiana technology companies. And Leslie Bonilla Muniz reports that two long abandoned brownfields in Indianapolis could be revived with a $90 million overhaul for manufacturing and food processing. Again, you can read these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. Now that's a little easier said than done, but I can guarantee you access. If you're a subscriber, it works out to about $2 per week. For all of the latest news about local business and politics, plus all of IBJ's data about the central Indiana economy and corporate community, just go to IBJ.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast, which is edited by Leslie Weidenbenner. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.